Can I sit here in church like an imposter, she asks. Am I an imposter? I take a moment to collect myself. Her honesty and vulnerability are too familiar. I too have sat in a room full of Christians and admitted I don't believe in Christ or in any God at all. I tell her a story about a man walking along the shore of a lake. On his way, he runs into two fishermen. They're busy working, but he tells them that he'll show them how to bring in people instead of fish if they come with him. The two fishermen drop their nets and follow the man. I tell her one of those fishermen was Simon, who was also called Peter, and that he is one of the founders of the church with a big C. When Peter dropped his nets and followed the man, Jesus, he didn't know anything about the Messiah being a sacrificial lamb or about crucifixion or resurrection. He just heard the man's story and believed it enough to follow him. The Gospels are a collection of stories about Peter and the other 11 disciples constantly doubting, believing the wrong thing, or entirely missing the point about what Jesus was saying. So do I think it's okay not to know what you believe and still be a part of the church? Heck yeah. In fact, I think that's exactly what following Jesus is about. Welcome to the Liturgist Podcast, everybody. Today is a very special episode because our beloved friend and my co-host, Science Mike, is now a published author. His book, Finding God in the Waves, was just released, and in this episode, we are going to get behind the scenes of this book and into that vast, incomprehensible mystery that is Science Mike's brain. So, Mike, what was it, three years ago? We're at the Rob Bell party, and... uh, I didn't believe anything, and you were drunk, apparently. You were kind of... I was real drunk. <laughs> you, did, yeah. you had a good game face on. <laughs> you barely believed anything, it seemed like. I had a formalized metaphysic. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you were working for an ad agency. The conversation that we struck up uh, began with the... Uh, illusory metaphysical constructs that that people conjure up in their brains when they are at one of our shows and they're lifting their hands into the air and working themselves into a emotional frenzy. Uh, and I enjoyed that conversation very much. <laughs> and we became fast friends. And now here, here we are, three and a half years later, and we have a podcast together and a thing called The Liturgists. And now you're a published author that wrote a book called Finding God in the Waves. Yeah, today. I'm a published author today through the bizarre time-shifting capacity of the internet. (laughs) It's not today, but it's today. It's relativity brought to life. Yes, and even if they listen past the day, you still will be a published author. Oh, man, that blew my mind. Always and forever. How do you feel? (laughs) Oh, man, terrified. I didn't, no one told me about the fear. I'm really, I'm at that phase where I've done everything. Like, I've, I've poured my life into a project, a book. It's like all my most profound thinking 
and all my deepest thinking on a particular topic created with the goal of helping people, uh, it's done. I can't write anymore. I can't change any of it. And all the work to try to tell people about it has already been set in motion and done. And all I can do now is see how people respond. Will anybody like it? Will anybody buy it? Will anyone be helped by it? Right now, it's all just question marks. And I did not expect the amount of vulnerability that comes with that. I've never in my life created something that people could go to a store and buy or not. I've done podcasts, I've done these talks, but I've never had like dead trees of my thoughts shipped across the country. I mean, it's really scary. And it's not scary in an ego way. I'm happy with the book. But, but what will happen? What will, <laughs> will this book connect to people that I have dreamed and poured into for it to do so? And I don't know. And the response is just fear. I actually, I'm really curious, like, what was your experience like right before your first record came out? Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I'm sure, yeah, that's it's, it's, yeah, been, it's a been a while. But that, yeah, there's a jittery, like, how are people going to take this? And I'm sure some, I mean, I'm sure there was some self-doubt in there and some, uh, I mean, I mean, it's, it's like mixed with excitement, I'm sure, you know? As we know, self-doubt is a somewhat alien emotion for me. <laughs> <laughs> so the experiencing in the context of the book has really surprised me. I mean, if, yeah, it feels a little bit like, uh, for, you know, I, I made it to my wedding night as a virgin as that good evangelical Christian. And it feels a little, you know, like I'm going to be seen in everything I am tonight. And, uh, I hope it's okay. <laughs> I hope she digs it. <laughs> oh man. It's good that. Yeah. A book is like that, but with your like soul, soul. Yeah. And hopefully thousands of people. <laughs> It's so weird. Well, it's um, it's a beautiful book. Phenomenal job. I, I wish I could tell you that everybody's going to love it. There's a lot of people that are going to think you're the devil. Um, <laughs> so is Axioms, man. And there's a lot of people that are going to get a lot of hope. There's going to be a lot more people that get a lot of hope uh, than people that hate it, I think. But, the, you know, the people that hate it might have a louder voice at times. Uh, the one that are actually being helped are in circumstances that often they probably couldn't talk about it very much. They don't feel safe to tell people how much the book is meaning to them. So I hope you do find ways of savoring the people that are bold enough to talk about it. Um, well, I've thought a little bit about that because it's pretty easy to check out the Liturgist podcast or Ask Science Mike on the DL. Nobody knows you're listening. You could just be listening yeah. to the latest praise and worship record uh, right before yeah. staff meeting because it's so personal and so ethereal. But for people who actually get this book, a friend of mine recently told me a story about uh, getting the book Love Wins and hiding it from all their friends because they were so terrified of being found out that they were reading yeah. Love Wins and uh, you know working for a parachurch organization. I think it's safe to say there, 
there's that element of uh pushing certain orthodoxies in my book as there was in love wins maybe even even yeah i was just gonna say like rob took an entire book to like pose the question what if there's no hell and then you just kind of wipe it away like in a paragraph (laughs) yeah that's just like a starting assumption (laughs) i remember stepping out on my back balcony and as mike talked to me about the ever expansive nature of the universe And I remember as he shared with us the stars and the solar system, this feeling, this sense that he was now grounded and rooted. And then Mike just started talking about his favorite subject, the human brain. He shared with us about the role of the frontal lobe, the amygdala, the thalamus. As he talked, it was fascinating the way he could draw all of us into this conversation. And that's where I had this moment within me of like, I don't know if I buy this. And so I just let it out. I said, I don't know if I believe this. And I remember him just backing up slowly, calmly, working me through his argument again. And and what, what blew my mind was the way he could quote, not only from the top neuroscience research and what it was showing us, but then he could simply tell me two practical, popular works on the human brain. I was so captivated. And that's when he started sharing his journey of faith and doubt from atheism to being a believer. And I remember that in that living room, in my living room, Michael Gongor started opening up about his own journey of faith and doubt. And and back and forth, Michael Gongor and Mike began to open up and dialogue with one another. And that's when, that's when Mike McCarg became Science Mike. Because in that moment, he shared with us his incredible axioms of faith. It was incredible. It was inspiring. And in that one moment, there was laughter. And there were questions. And faith and doubt seemed to dance with one another. There was stargazing and adult beverages. Early in the 20th century, Albert Einstein demonstrated that matter and energy are made of the same basic stuff, and that not only is everything that is solid in the universe made up of mostly empty space, but that what actual little mass there is only exists because some particles interact with a universal, invisible field called the Higgs field. The reason you and I exist is that most of our body's particles create some kind of quantum drag against an invisible Higgs field that makes them slow down from light speed and gain mass in the process. That's at least as weird as anything in Genesis. Cosmology describes a force that created us and then transformed itself into a system of forces and energy that continue to sustain the universe. This sounds at least a little like what Paul told the people of Athens. In him we live and move and have our very being. So excellent job at the craft of writing a book. This is your first book, and it's an impressive one. I mean, I don't think anybody would have been terribly surprised to get a thousand-page treatise on the neurology of belief. Um <laughs> From you, that which is how it started, yeah. That you know, people needed a PhD to understand, but instead, you wrote an extremely accessible, like 250 page 
story driven. It's such a narrative about your experience. And you did a phenomenal job with the writing. It's, I mean, it's easy to understand. Um, yet it's still incredibly deep and rich in content. Uh, so first, first of all, congratulations and well done. Um, <laughs> but as a person who could have written this book any number of ways, why did you choose to write this book like this? Why an accessible narrative driven book for you who could obviously write more academically or whatever? It started as an encyclopedia, like my answer to every issue at the intersection of science and faith and doubt. So the first, my first take at that, at making an outline, was a 39-page outline <laughs> that literally didn't explain one thing. It was a list of <laughs> topics organized into sections. And uh, I was actually going to release the whole thing as an as a e-book for free. And I sent, sent the outline to my friend uh, Rob Bell, who said, that's an outline. And he was so gracious. <laughs> and he said, you know, this is, this is amazing. And the 12 people who it would be life-changing for would really appreciate it. But if it's 39 pages as basically a table of contents, it's a set of encyclopedias. Um, and if you really want to help people... They have to start by feeling known, and they ha have to feel like you understand their experiences. And the way they do that is they hear your amazing story. And I said, but Rob, like, I've told my story on the Pete Holmes podcast. Everyone has heard it. <laughs> yeah, it does. I'm an idiot. And uh, Rob was like, Pete's got a big show, but not everyone <laughs> has heard your story. And so he said, you know, I think you should... Uh, keep working and I would try to figure out more like what is the one thing what's the spine of the book and then what topics fit in that one spine and then save the other ones for later which was great advice because now I have like 12 books outlined <laughs> but I, I took those things and then I couldn't figure out like how to make them fit another friend was like don't make any of them fit just tell your story and so then I started studying the science of uh, the neuroscience of how brains respond to story. And so then I took my story as kind of a, a narrative device that created solidarity and then carried an information payload of a science friendly way of approaching the Christian imagination and experiences. And so I, I sort of set out with the book as an engineering project which was designed to help people who felt at conflict with their desire to know God make peace with it. It, it actually means a lot like when people say it's well written because I've never worked as hard on anything as I did on developing an accessible writing voice because I didn't want anyone to pick up the book and feel like they couldn't follow it. But I also didn't want people who were really into science or had gone deeper into philosophy to feel like the book was shallow. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the hardest thing was working with, uh, with my editors at my publisher and creating that balance of a book that's easy to pick up and feels conversational, but actually really deeply explores, you know, what do we mean by the word God? What happens in our brains and physics when we talk about that concept? How does prayer affect us physiologically and emotionally? What does the Bible mean today? All these, you know, questions could be books in themselves, 
but <laughs> I feel so bad because people like encounter my work right now and they listen to the Liturgist podcast or Ask Science Mike or read some blog posts or Google and there's all this stuff out there but you can't find it all in one place and by necessity a podcast is limited in length and a blog post is limited in length so invariably even if they find all the pieces I have out there related to their question it doesn't go deep enough to satisfy and that's like like why I did a, a book like a book book like you go to a store and and spend hours with this thing was I wanted to give comprehensive satisfying answers to all these various things the exact road I struggled to go down myself after I became an atheist I remember I just gotten back in town uh, and I had been hanging out with Mike for uh, several days in Denver. When I got back in town, my wife had left. Our marriage had dissolved and the deal was that when I went on this trip, she would pack up and move out. And I got home and um, no one was home and I walked in and I saw a sink full of dishes and I thought, I'm gonna clean up the kitchen and do the dishes because I know that'll make her happy when she gets back. And then it hit me that she was not coming back. I just was overwhelmed with the fact that my marriage was over. And I remember calling Mike and I remember spending the next 20 to 25 minutes just bawling. And Mike just kept saying over and over again, this is totally normal. This is totally okay. Just let yourself cry. And I know Mike's a busy man, but he didn't mind staying on the phone with me for 25 minutes while I collected myself and pulled myself together so that I could basically have some semblance of it's okay. And that's what he kept telling me. It's okay. Just let yourself cry. It's okay. That's the kind of guy Mike is. He'll just let you fall apart and then he'll be there when it's time to put it back together. So for those of you that are not familiar with kind of the main story that we keep alluding to and that this book is about, uh, you could go back to Lost and Found, the liturgist episodes um, that we recorded, part one and two, that kind of detail this story in, in an audio format. And of course, he gets things in the, into things in the book that we weren't able to get into on the podcast. But for those of you that would like a version, you know, an, an audio uh, edition of the story, you can go back and listen to, like, to that. Aside from Mike, you know, you have an audio book as well, which is great. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that almost died recording. <laughs> yeah. Any newcomers to the show? Uh, Mike was a Southern Baptist, became an atheist. And then had this crazy mystical experience on the beach where he felt God spoke to him and spent a lot of time trying to make sense of it. Uh, when God speaks to you as an atheist, it's a bizarre experience. Um, so this story has spread. I mean, it's around a lot on the Internet. It's around, you know, Mike just told it a lot live on the podcast. Um, I've heard it a bunch of times, but it's still always tremendously inspiring and feels like an important story. Um, for our time, it's just like, 
there's so much animosity between religion and science in the world. And Mike, who is somebody who has dived wholeheartedly into both worlds and who's not only well-read within the sciences, but is actually very well-read um, and thought through philosophically and with religion, it having been such an important part of his life for so long. And I find it fascinating that you, Mike, as a nine Enneagram, a peacemaker, it's funny that you find yourself at this strange intersection of science and faith. Uh, how much do you, how much do you think your personality uh, plays into your theology and where where you've come this far on the journey? in trying to make peace with worlds that are so often against one another. I mean, that's kind of what made me take the Enneagram seriously <laughs> is when I realized I was a peacemaker and every single thing that I find compelling and that I feel called to address involves making peace between camps at war everything now sometimes that's like two camps within one person right you'll notice the 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 questions i answer on ask saints mike for example are about helping make a person make peace within themselves or with their family or with their community but it's always peace driven the kind of um, racial justice and um, uh, lgbtq issues that i'm drawn toward are all about making peace between uh, majority groups and marginalized groups and then this sort of sign of our times, this tension between faith, especially um, more conservative religion, and the school of thought exhibited by the sciences, feels most uh, close to what I call a calling or a mission in life. Because it's a conversation which is completely dominated by the uh, least peace-seeking personalities involved in the discussion. The loudest voices on the science side are these like really, really intense anti-theists who like are not only think there's no God, but think it's like immoral or dangerous for people to believe there is a God. And on the other side, on the faith side, what you see the most in the media, what you see in the most on internet comments are people who completely reject basics like evolution and cosmology so that they can read Genesis in a really reductionist literalistic way and what 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 i see is uh both of those groups are pretty content in their antipathy for each other uh, and meanwhile this mass of th this majority of people is kind of caught in the crossfire and miserable and doesn't feel comfortable like planting a flag in either of those camps uh, and i think this is why like no religious affiliation is the fastest growing religion in America, but also atheism isn't growing that significantly. Is people are saying, if the choice is this or this, I'm just going to kind of reject both and find my own way or uncomfortably parse the two and create my own ethic. And what I found as I sat down to write this book is not a lot of people have both been a true, genuine, conservative fundamentalist and a completely materialistic atheist and able to understand those worldviews and kind of take them on and off at will. And that uh, gives you an ability, if you have a peacemaker's personality, 
to act as a translator and hopefully provide some uh, insights for people about what the other group is up to and the ways in which there's actually many more commonalities than they would expect. But it's completely, completely driven by that that peacemaker personality, which itself is born from my childhood, right? I mean, I talk about that in the book. It's uh, all the bullying and um, you know trying to keep people calm so that I could get through the day. So I imagine some of your critics might raise the question to you, like, does that, you know, come on everybody, just get along mentality um, lead you to t- such a subjective view of an engagement with reality that it actually skews or limits the message that you're saying? You know, like, are you concerned that your subjective view and you trying to build the bridges actually some waters down anything or, or makes you steer away from the truth? Is it does it skew your view of reality too much? Are you concerned about that at all? I should be. <clears throat> I think historically in my life, I have had a real tendency to water down anything I was saying to make the people I was present with feel most comfortable, even at the expense of communicating honestly or truthfully. Um, I think in my late teens, early 20s, I was almost a pathological liar, but less about presenting the best version of myself and more about making who I was with feel comfortable. But the end result is the same. It's broken relationships. It's missed opportunities. Dishonesty has consequences. And I think those experiences have made me wary of the cost of needless compromise. So I'm, I, I'm really careful to make sure that any statement I make is empirically grounded, that I can cite evidence to support that claim. And I mean that not just in like a scientific worldview way, but even about like things that have happened in my life. I mean, people that know me know that one of my favorite phrases is, I don't know, or I don't remember. I don't make significant efforts to even conjecture on things that I have less certainty about. So it's less about um, going too far in terms of what I believe and more about using language that makes people feel comfortable and known and honored. So it's one thing to say, I understand your position, and it's another thing to say, I agree with it. And I can, I can get to, I understand your position on almost any topic. I can get to, I agree with your position relatively rarely, but I don't worry about trying to find common agreement as a point of affinity. I don't even think in my audience, people that listen to me, many of them disagree with me on many, many, many significant issues but they're a part of that conversation because they share that value of trust and respect and genuine listening for the sake of learning from another's perspective. And the book is set in that tone. My book is not a, you know, my claim of, you know, here's what God says or here's what the Bible says. It's not a set of absolute interpretations. I'm not claiming to be a prophet. I'm not claiming even to be a scholar. What I do is share things I've learned from my experience under the complete assumption I could be wrong about any or all of them. Where I speak to science, I'm careful 
to stick to well-accepted, well-documented scientific theories and hypotheses. Those have been uh, cited. I've asked people who are scientists who I trust to review those claims and make sure I didn't go out of bounds anywhere. So I worked exceptionally hard at being well-grounded on the scientific points. But then on the points of faith, yeah, absolutely. In a lot of ways, I depart from the sort of evangelical orthodoxy. I grew up with that. But I, I also immediately disclose that. I don't try to you know, sell people a, a false bill of goods that they're going to be able to read this book and get back to their Baptist faith. But this is a book about if you're kind of stuck in nowhere land, if you feel like you don't belong anywhere, I don't feel like I belong with skeptics completely. I don't, <clears throat> I have this longing for God that feels superstitious or silly, but won't go away. I don't believe in God, but I do like to pray. What's that about? That's really who this book is for. And it's, it's less about making spiritual truth claims than it is helping people work through and process their spiritual experiences uh, and finding their own journey and their own way. There's no end zone I'm trying to drive people toward with the book. I'm just trying to give them the tools to relate to God in a way that is successful for them. That said, I do absolutely take on some theological ideas that I think are troubling, and I explain why. <laughs> like substitutionary atonement theory. Yeah. That's probably the strongest takedown in the whole book. Yeah. Which I enjoyed very much. <laughs> <laughs> some people will really not enjoy that. They will not. Uh, but they need to face it. They need to face what, what the uh, bald reality behind the uh, flowery words that people use is. So a couple years ago, partway through my deconstruction, I, I found myself in an awkward place as a pastor at a church that I grew up in. I'd been there for 28 years, uh, 11 of those years on staff. I felt trapped by people's expectations of me and my responsibilities to them because I was growing and I was changing and, and evolving. And it put me in a spot where I had to choose between one of two betrayals, either to betray myself and my growth or betray the people and their expectations. I knew I had to go. I just couldn't seem to let go of it. So I gave Mike a call. He asked me this question. He said, would it be healthy for you if you stayed? I said, no. He said, then how could it be healthy for them? With those two questions, he dismantled my story of self-importance and laid waste to my pastoral God complex. Hey everybody, just wanted to take a quick second and thank those of you who make this show possible through your support on Patreon. In fact, just so you know, Mike and I don't consider ourselves the liturgists. Liturgy means the work of the people, and Mike and I are just a couple of the liturgists cooperating to make this work and these conversations happen. We consider those of you who help us in that process, you're part of this thing. You are the liturgists in our minds. And for those of you that don't know what Patreon is, it's a site that helps artistic endeavors that are often given away to people for free, things like podcasts. Uh, it helps those things happen. And you may notice that we've always tried to keep this show as free from ads as possible because we want your listening experience to be as focused as possible. But at the same time, creating a podcast like this takes a lot of time. 
takes a lot of resources to produce. And uh, like I said, this show is free. So it's entirely upon the generosity of our patrons that this show is able to happen and do what it does and help the hundreds of thousands of people around the world, the people who feel spiritually homeless and frustrated, who are finding a place to belong and feel safe. So thank you for what all of you are doing to make that happen. If you are interested in becoming one of these kind souls who help the work happen, you can go to theliturgists.com slash podcast and there'll be a link there on the right hand side of the page it says patreon you just click that and anything helps even a dollar a month and all the patrons get little perks like access to the liturgists conversations a second podcast that mike and i host that's sort of a stripped back zero production zero editing just raw conversation we release that podcast on the off weeks of this podcast and actually a lot of people kind of like that show just as much some even like it better than this one which is funny because it's a lot less work but you can enjoy that if you're a patron so again if you want to help the liturgist family clean the table off after dinner make this show possible we'd be ever so grateful again you can just go to the liturgists.com slash podcast and click the link on the right side of the page thanks so much everybody If you've ever been hurt by a church, you'll have to grieve the loss to be healthy. The deeper the wound, the more time you'll need. Sometimes, sorting out your emotions and reactions will feel like sorting through a restaurant's dumpster without gloves on, but all those feelings have to come up. The neurological associations with that trauma must be exposed to be healed. The more painful a story is to tell, the more we need to tell it. Jesus spoke a lot about the importance of forgiveness, a crucial teaching, but one that has sometimes been used by religious folk to dismiss people's suffering or deny their own. But the science of processing pain, grief, and trauma is clear. When people attempt to shortcut or disavow the sorrow of emotional wounds instead of expressing it, they might unconsciously harbor hostility or helplessness instead of forgiveness. They may experience more psychological harm. Experiments show that our intellectual, emotional, and even physical performance can be affected by emotions denied breathing room. I find it fascinating that as a, someone who's a peacemaker, you're trying to br- bring bridges between these two worlds or however many worlds that fight against each other. And that's what, you know, we do a lot, what this podcast is about, trying to bridge science, art, and faith and find places of discussion there. But I find it fascinating that you, for someone who's longing for peace so much and who is so uncomfortable when different people are warring, you kind of, the role of a peacemaker is somewhat like to take some of the brunt of that yourself, which is a weird thing. Like you hate dissonance so much that you take it into yourself rather than having other people experience it. So for, you're going to get shit from the conservatives <laughs> and you're going to get shit from the atheists and the, you know, as you have in the past, I'm sure this book is just going to amp it up a little bit, but like you're not pure enough 
with your language from the scientific community, why are you talking about these God things? You're just, you know, eliciting superstition and these, and these backwards people. And then, uh, for a lot of Christians, it'd be like, you're just compromising what the Bible says and what God has taught just because you're, you know, trying to be scientific and whatever. <laughs> so it's like the least peaceful thing for you to be in the place. It'd be, it'd have been much more peaceful for you just to shut up and be a good Southern Baptist and not talk about LGBTQ issues or, or just to switch sides entirely and just be an outspoken atheist, but to embrace these two different polarities as a bridge of peace. I found it, it's a kind of ironic, but it's also pretty beautiful. I think so far it, it, I think most people would be shocked if they if I gave them like my Gmail credentials and just let them log in and read all the email that comes into my website. I think people would be surprised given the quantity of mail how rare uh, what I call nasty grams are. That's true. It's really yeah. uncommon. And even if you like go through and look at um, comments on Ask Science Mike or the Liturgist podcast it's not that many there either. There's these really thoughtful, substantive conversations in many cases that have really significant disagreement. I'm worried I'm getting a little preview of the future, though, in this election season, contrary to my nature, literally because I'm so afraid that Donald Trump could become president. I've actually talked about politics in a specific way on Facebook and Twitter for the first time. And some of those posts are saying, you know, reaching a quarter million or, or, or you know, 400,000 people. And the tone of the discussion, the way it's so different from what I'm used to at that scale, really does actually grieve me a little bit. <laughs> and I, there is this thing like, uh, now that the book comes out, does, does it increase the exposure enough that in some ways the, the very beautiful nature of this community that I'm a part of changes that people more interested in just I'm right and you're wrong and uh, I'm going to spend a few characters telling you that um, I mean I'm okay if that happens I'm really comfortable having an opinion and I'm really comfortable with other people having a different opinion but some of the the vitriol of people who are almost terrified of some sort of um, reconciliation or shared understanding it does it does affect me significantly. And I, and I know that because in those, those times where I've had like two or three or four day little Twitter firestorms or whatever, that stuff really does affect me. So I'm going to have to be intentional, probably with a discipline to have more reflection time, more meditation time, more recovery time to process all those things. Because it, you, what you said is so true that the, as a peacemaker, you just pull that stuff in and internalize it and process it because you want to figure out how to diffuse it. And then there's the, the resisting that impulse to diffuse as well. And that, the, the, but the, 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 the good thing is it's where that book comes from. <laughs> like finding God in the ways was literally born from me learning to, you know, create a harmony out of the dissonance I felt between my Southern Baptist upbringing and my conversion to atheism and then my experience with mysticism. Those are some pretty radically different 
set of assumptions, experiences, belief systems. And this book only exists because I, I, I found a way to have the three different tones of those energies to resonate together. So how do you see in the general sort of cultural conversation that's happening between those worlds, what do you hope that both sides could kind of get from what are you, what are you adding to the conversation? What do you hope that a skeptic or that a hardline atheist will hear um, in your book? And what do you hope that a conservative Christian would hear? Like what, what do you, how, how are you adding to the conversation could you boil that down a little bit and, and, and do you have any hopes of what the different sides would take away from it? I mean, what I want to do with this book is give people understanding and better language to communicate. And so for the skeptic, I hope I've presented a fantastic science-based argument that there are really good scientific reasons that people believe in God and that in, in, in many contexts, that belief and that practice of faith is healthy and beneficial, it serves psychological needs, it serves sociological needs, and positively impacts human behavior, human bonding, This and all this stuff is really outlined in the book, that, that faith is not some fool's errand. Also, that there are more ideas about God than the dominant American depictions of God, even inside of Christianity, but, but certainly across all different religions. So I hope that the atheist or the skeptic will come away with a deeper understanding that uh, the word God is one of the most complicated and nuanced words in the English language, and that there's a lot of science out there that really good peer-reviewed science that undermines some of the popular skeptical notions about religious faith. So that's really what I would hope the skeptical reader would take away. Um, in terms of the the more conventionally Christian or, or, or conservative Christian reader, I hope that they would take away from the book an understanding of the mind of an atheist, that atheists are not evil people, they're not sinful people, they're not angry at God, they don't believe in God, there's nothing for them to be angry toward, that they would understand that there are incredibly compelling reasons to make a claim like, I don't believe in the Christian God, or I don't believe in any God at all. And that you would understand, far from being some um, frightening term, that humanism is actually a redemptive movement that seeks to improve the conditions of human life. Its premise is not based on taking down religion, but instead that the goal of humanism is to create human flourishing. And in that way, in my opinion, humanism is remarkably like the intent of the Gospels. Um, and so I would kind of hope that these two groups would understand each other in a way they never have before and also would have a better understanding of the merit of each other's arguments. Whether that succeeds or not, we'll see. I've only had a couple of atheists read the book, and uh, I've only had one <laughs> conservative religious person read the book so far. So. <laughs> Uh, whether it worked or not is a mystery, but I sure tried hard at it. Who is in your mind primarily when you're writing this? Who, who's your kind of, who are you hoping, who are you really hoping this reaches? I know you hope it reaches people from all over the spectrum, but is there, who's at the, at the center of, of who you hope this book can reach? 
It is not the atheist or the conservative Christian, although I know those people will read it. The, the, the people I wrote it for are the ones who would email me saying, I heard your story and I need help. I feel lost. And some of those people would call themselves atheists. Some of those people would call themselves Christians. Some of those people would say, I don't even know what to call myself anymore. But they were in a state of personal crisis. They felt at odds with themselves and with their communities. And I would literally, because I get so many of these emails, I can't reply to even a small fraction of them. Uh, But I read them all. And I would take a different email each day. And I would print it out. And I would put it by my monitor. And I would read that person's name as I wrote. And I, for that day, I would write to that person because I understand exactly what it's like to feel like no one else is going through this, that there's no one I can talk to, to feel like if I were to talk to my friends and family, they would reject me. I get emails from people who live in, in, in secular contexts, who are embarrassed about this this new faith that they have, as, as often as I get emails from people who are pastors of conservative churches who say, I, I don't believe in God anymore and I have to go on the pulpit Sunday morning or I lose my job and I can't feed my kids. And this book is written for those people in crisis, those people who we call the spiritually homeless and frustrated. So they are either in a spiritual community, but they just don't feel like they belong there. They don't feel safe and they don't feel understood. Or that frustration has gotten to a point that they're now just wandering through life alone with no sense of spiritual community and belonging. And the, the, the terrible irony of that condition is people in that state feel alone. But the statistics and the demographics and the survey data tell us that this is a massive group of Americans and, in fact, is the fastest-growing type of faith in our society. And no one is making resources. No one is building bookstores. No one is seeking to help people on this journey the way if you call yourself an atheist or a Baptist or a Catholic or a Mormon or whatever label you use, as soon as you grab that label, there's this support network that's an academic support, information support, community support. But these people, this fastest growing faith, if you can call it that in America, share only one thing in common, and that is that they all feel alone. More than anything else, that's why I wanted to write that book. Hey, Mike. It's your friendly big bear, Jeb. I'm very proud of you for all your accomplishments, and I'm even more proud to call you friends. Love you, buddy. Hey, Mike. This is your baby sister. Just wanted to say congratulations on your very first book. I love you, man. Congrats. Hey, Mike. This is Jacob. Hey, Mike. It's Hedges. Just calling to say a huge congratulations. Uh, thank you for saying the hard things and for challenging us and teaching us and being a place of safety and comfort and thanks for being our friend we love you so much we're so proud of you I know that this book I just want to say having read it has already changed my life and I can't wait 
to send like 30 copies of this to a lot of other friends. Hey Mike, congratulations. I'm so proud of you. The book is amazing. Because of your book, my husband might come to Christ. And that's the truth. So, love you very much. Congrats. Hi Science Mike, better known to me as Michael. This is your mom. Your mother and I and the entire family are so proud of the man that you've become. I love you bunches. You are the perfect son. I'm so proud of your contribution to the faith community through your continued discussion and contributions on faith and science and debunking the bits that make the two incompatible. We love you, son. So proud of you. Hi, Dad. I'm so excited I have an author for a guest. Your book is going to be great. Love you. Hi, Dad. I'm so proud of you and glad that your book is finally out. Love you. Hey, love. We've come a long way since our conversation on the love seat. I had no idea what our lives would be like in the four years that have followed, but God knew and he had a plan all along. I'm so grateful to be your partner on this journey called life. It seems like it took forever to get here, but launch day is finally here. And I know this labor of love will be read by many. Enjoy this moment. I love you and I'm so proud of you. We simplistically teach a single story in our history classrooms of brave rebels who left cultures of tyranny and heroically crossed the Atlantic to found a nation built on freedom and justice. When we speak of our national sins, such as the genocide committed against Native Americans or the brutal long-term economic extraction of wealth from black bodies via slavery and segregation, we seem to dismiss these troubling matters as things that happened in the remote past but have been solved today. We often tell ourselves the easy story, not the messy, multi-party conversation required to view our natural history in its true light. Complex, contradictory, sometimes cruel, and never quite resolved. Is it any wonder, then, that we tend to read the Bible this way. So after having told this story so many times and now written about it and rewritten and rewritten, I know I, as we would t chat while you were while you were writing the book and just the amount of times you rewrote is <laughs> astounding. But it's I've I've written a book I understand it it's just like anybody that's writing a book I, I like there's a we have a friend here in town that was she just finished her first draft of her of her first book and she's like she thinks she's almost done she's like I finished I did the first draft it's all I mean I just got to do some edits I'm like ah uh, you haven't <laughs> you have not begun like you're just starting <laughs> um, but anyway after after engaging with this story so many times you know, both live written form and well as the podcast and the other things. What is your relationship with this story at this point? Are you weary of telling it? Do you ever find yourself doubting, deconstructing it? Do you find, um, 
is it is there a sadness that you have at all with telling it? Do you just love telling it, or what's your relationship with the story at this point? With it, and and with it becoming like an important story for so many people too, it's a it's a source of faith for a lot of other people now too. Yeah, it's not my story anymore. Yeah, I offered it as a sacrifice to this community I believe in. I've literally listened to a podcast several times and heard someone else explain my story to a third person as an analogy to help them process what was going on in their life. When that happens, like it's not my story. I love the story. I love the way it changed my life. The reason I can continue to tell it authentically and with real emotion is because that moment on the beach was so powerful that every time I, I sort of I dig into this story, there's this resonance, this emotional resonance of that moment that happens every time. But frankly, I've told the story so many times that like right before I go on stage, it's more of a, here we go. We got to do this one more time. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there is a, there's a weariness. I definitely... Uh, I have to dig deep every time I have to tell it on an interview or a podcast where there's no audience, where I can't see the people who are engaging with the yeah, story for yeah. the first time. I have to dig super, super deep. But one reason I want to put it in the book, I want to do one more book tour with it and then kind of tell it less often Yeah, <laughs> is because I have other things to say to the world on this matter of reconciling science and faith than the story. It would be almost like, I feel like if you were talking to a, a 40 year old man, um, and every time you saw him, he showed you his baby picture. Like it's beautiful. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great baby picture, but a lot more has happened in his life since then. And so one of the things that excited me about putting this in a book form is then when people are like, Oh man, I really, I've heard you have this great story. You'd be like, I do. And it's in a book called Finding God in the Waves in bookstores everywhere. <laughs> because I don't know if in, with the frequency I tell this story, two years from now, will I still be able to tell an authentic telling or will I just be saying words on stage? I don't know. I suspect it would be closer to the latter. And what this this book does is it takes that that moment of my life, it makes it more ownable for other people. And also kind of, um, it freezes it. it. It makes it a time capsule. I have to go back and listen to the story myself every so often to make sure I don't like drift yeah. and change the story with my memory and retelling. Yep. And even that's pretty tedious. I mean, imagine like once a month putting on headphones and listening to yourself talk for 60 minutes <laughs> on a story you know really well. It's a weird dynamic. I feel like in a lot of ways, like that, this most this most powerful moment of my life, it, and it it was it, it was and is and remains so. If that becomes my like hit song, <laughs> yeah. There's worse things. There's worse things than something that was genuinely moving and powerful and life changing, becoming closely associated with your identity. I think now I'm saying that as a an inexperienced person. Uh, I have friends who whose identities are closely associated with earlier works, especially literary works, and they're grateful, but also to some degree want to shake it off. But that's also why I, I want to 
I want to get book two out pretty fast as well. I mean, I think it's always going to be part of why your thoughts will be important to people because there aren't a lot of there aren't a lot of atheist backsliders out there, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That have like come through religion and then gone through all the arguments and said, you know what, I find no validity to religion whatsoever. I don't believe anymore, and then go back. Uh, <laughs> it just doesn't happen very much. So, to uh, the point that the first times I told the story, atheist bloggers were like, "This guy is not for real," because people don't un atheist. That's not a thing. <laughs> yeah, I think that story will always be part of the reason that how what's Moses without the burning bush? What's Paul without the the road to mask you know i mean like that's it's a turning point in their story that becomes important to what they become sorry any critics i'm not saying mike is a biblical figure (laughs) (laughs) it's okay i make that comparison in the book (laughs) but you know what i mean i mean there's moments of or buddha sitting under the tree or like whatever it is the story of uh the turning point the, the the light flicking on and so i i think that that story will always be with you and part of why people listen to you. But uh, of course it doesn't have to be the only thing you talk about, hopefully because you get really sick of that. Um, but I think there's also something I know for me personally, and I've heard mystics talk about this and I've experienced this in my own life where high spiritual points, um, especially when you talk about them, when you try to put words to them can actually become a stumbling block to your own spiritual growth in the future. And I've experienced that where I, I've remembering what it was and kind of longing for what that was can actually become like a trap and any, any method, any, um, practice, any belief system, any that, that kind of gets stuck at one point and doesn't allow you to keep moving forward into more and more truth and more and more beauty and love and wonder. Like the, the, the beautiful things, the beautiful story that we've, the beautiful stories that we've experienced can actually become traps for us. Have you felt any of that tension yet? Or do you, what do you think about that idea? Uh, it's a good idea. It's got neurological validity. <laughs> like there's, there's some really great, uh, brain scans that back up that idea for me that's been kind of the gift of surrendering this experience to other people yeah i have integrated it and kept moving uh and the amount of my communication bandwidth this several year old story takes means that subsequent experiences have remained mine some of the most intense moments I've had since in my meditative practice or in spiritual experiences have been things I haven't told anyone about. And I'm pretty, I'm pretty reticent to Mm -hmm. because what I have now of the beach is more a memory of telling the story of the beach than the beach itself. Mm -hmm. Um, and what I have of those latter experiences is just those experiences. I've never written a word about them. I've never talked about them on stage. And I think that's essential because in 40 years, if my faith is nothing but I saw God on this beach one time, yeah, I just don't know that that's a very life-giving, life-transforming 
thing. You know what I mean? It would be yeah. like if all I did was think about the time my wife lifted the veil off her face, yeah. which was, wow, a great moment. But so was lunch today. Yeah. Now you're married. <laughs> which I've done in my past. Like my, And I didn't really talk about this in the book because uh, I didn't realize it until you asked that question. But a lot of my Baptist faith was about I would have some great experience and then spend two or three years trying to replicate that experience. Yeah. And I think that's been a good thing. Mysticism was my only road back to faith, right? Without, without the mystics, I have no way to, to do this. That idea of surrendering, of presence, of accepting, but also releasing has been really essential to my faith being a thing that continues, that's part of my life, that changes as I do, that grows as I do. It's that, it's that discipline, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, of not trying to hold on tightly to everything, but instead just kind of surrendering and enjoying. And that, that posture, that posture is my way of honoring those ways every day. Hi, my name is Sarah Heath, and I am lucky enough to be one of Mike's uh, really close friends. So um, I do want to tell a story that is a little embarrassing that I think you guys might enjoy. So a couple of Valentine's Day uh, ago, our friend Science Mike uh, decided that uh, him and his beautiful wife had two perfect children, and they didn't want to add to that flock. And so he decided to go and have the surgery that some men do to prevent that from happening. But unfortunately, he had some swelling issues, and so he had to carry around a bag of frozen peas. Now, at some point, you just have to laugh when you realize that you are walking around with your poor friend who has just had a vasectomy, and it's Valentine's Day, and it's Laguna Beach, and you're surrounded by couples enjoying Valentine's Day. And there you are with Science Mike and a bag of frozen peas. About three years ago, Mike and I decided to meet up in Nashville and uh, it was the very first night we got there. We had dinner, and uh, then we decided to go out on the town for a couple hours, and we came across this uh, bar that was doing karaoke. So we went in, and, um, you know, I had no plans on doing any karaoke, and I don't know that anyone else in our group did either. And uh, But Mike slipped away, and I saw him go over and talk to the, uh, the guy running the karaoke system, and then he came back, and then uh, a few songs after that... <laughs> He called Mike McCarg to the stage, in which Mike proceeded to do Sir Mix-A-Lot, Baby Got Back, impeccably well. I mean, he nailed every note, word for word, rhyming and rapping with Sir Mix-A-Lot, and included a little bit of twerking. You have not seen someone karaoke until you've seen Mike McCard twerking while singing perfectly Baby Got Back. I think one odd thing about us and what we try to do with this podcast, even though it's called the liturgists, which is an old church word, and... Uh, from the beginning, we've said, you know, we acknowledge our Christian roots and leanings while wanting to remain open to people of any kind of heritage or thought or whatever. But we don't care about trying, like you, you had mentioned before, we're not trying to push you over a some sort of line to say, be a believer, be a whatever. Why do you think that is? How, how do you, how would you articulate why why it is that you're not trying to use your science 
to justify a belief in God or trying to argue with atheists about a potential, you know, a potential viable model of God to try to get them to use the same language as you or try to believe it. How is doubt a friend to faith? Because it seems like that's sort of our MO on the podcast is like embracing wherever you're at and being okay and just keep moving forward. How, how do those two, the interplay of doubt and faith and how, how do those happen in this book and, and in your own heart and head? And why is it you're not evangelical with your beliefs about trying to get other people to think exactly the same way as you? Doubt was the boogeyman when I was Baptist. It was this dark and nefarious thing that crept up when you failed to be vigilant and attacked you and weakened you and maybe even killed you. And it was to be avoided and combated and defeated through prayer and Bible study and Christian fellowship. Uh, doubt was the great tool of our enemy, the devil. As I feared doubt and doubt set into my faith, all those predictions turned out to be true. <laughs> I, I lost everything I had of God. Everything I valued, everything I loved about my faith withered away with this adversary and I was defeated. And so I found a new way to combat doubt. And that was the beautiful tool of science where I knew exactly how confident I was with any given belief. Uh, I had evidence to cite my claims and I even had a belief system now that could accommodate new information and changes, which meant I would never have to struggle with doubt again. I would never have the rug pulled out from under me. And I became just as certain an atheist as I had been certain a Southern Baptist. And then there was that light. And as beautiful and as moving as seeing God on the beach was and as hearing Jesus speak to me was, it pulled the rug out from under me again. <laughs> and I was so heartbroken. I was so heartbroken. Can I never know anything for sure? And then I realized, no, you can't. So what? You know, we have these moments where we can't fit in the place we were and it's almost like we get in an airplane and we take off. And before we run out of fuel, you know, we want to land in the next place. And one day I just asked myself, like, what if I stop trying to land? Because the plane doesn't exist. This is a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to land. This is just like my internal monologue. And from there, doubt became my daily companion. Only now it wasn't the boogeyman. Doubt was a friend because doubt became the foundation of a true humility I'd never known before. I always know I could be wrong. And if I could be wrong, what's the point in me trying to convince someone else to believe exactly what I believe that could be wrong? So what's left once you've embraced this doubt in your life? 
what what do you believe? What do you do with that? And I think this ancient teaching of love your neighbor and creating a world where people love their neighbors means that as we all are wrong about stuff, there's grace. It means that we have the space to be wrong uh, because we're not killing each other. And if we reorient our lives not to be around certainty and I know things, but service and helping people love each other, uh, you don't have to be certain about that because you just kind of see that it works. Doubt is only dangerous because of the fear we place in it and the iron grip we have on our ideas. We make idols of our ideas about God and they replace God. They stand in front of God. And the gift of losing all my certainty, even my scientific certainty, was a crash course in this lesson of the mystics and the desert fathers and the, the, the spiritual leaders of humanity is surrender. There is no battle if you surrender. There's no battle with doubt. There's no battle with fear. There's no battle with hate. In all these things, I can surrender and accept what is within me. And then when I look at the world, the actions I make are simply about desiring a world in which people are treated as I wish that I was treated. And it's a lot easier way to live. <laughs> the, 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 the trick, the reason I think let, you know, more people don't live that way is we have this addiction to certainty. We have this addiction to knowing, feeling like we have things figured out that comes from evolution and our orbital frontal cortex. But once you learn to kind of rock that baby to sleep, doubt stops being the enemy. Doubt is uh, doubt's your friend. When you scan the brains of believers, you find that their understanding of God is nonverbal, more akin to a feeling or experience than a set of ideas. This is why Christians are usually stumped if someone asks them, what is God? Contrary to what some skeptics say, it's not because these people's belief system is unsophisticated or simplistic. Instead, it's that their experiences with God aren't primarily associated with the language centers of the brain. Trying to describe God is a lot like trying to describe falling in love, and that's a serious problem for people who doubt that God is real. It's also why Christian apologists have such a difficult time reaching those who don't believe. While believers, when asked to focus on God, demonstrate a rich, elaborate neural construct, atheists presented with the same request show neurological fizzle. The unbelieving brain has no God construct, no neurological model for processing spiritual ideas and experiences in a way that feels real. This is why Bible stories and arguments for God's existence will always sound like nonsense to a skeptic. For the unbeliever, God is truly absent from his or her brain. Okay, so finding God in the waves is out now. It's about your story. What else? Tell us a little bit about the structure of your book. Give people a little picture of it. Little cliff notes for us. Yeah, so the first part of the book, the first half really is this telling of my story and reflecting on the good and the bad of my evangelical upbringing. 
and how I responded to that. And then the second half, we kind of take things topically and how I rebuilt my faith in this science mysticism hybrid. (laughs) And we kind of explore, you know, where do we find God in science, a God that's plausible scientifically. We look at prayer practice. What does science say about prayer and how to best practice it? Uh, We look at this issue of who is Jesus? What does Jesus mean to us? Uh, We look at uh, the church. What role does the church play? How do you find a good church? How do you deal with the ways church may have hurt you? And then uh, probably we've run up my favorite chapter of the whole book is talking about the Bible and how we relate to it and what value it may have for people today. It's literally those chapters were selected by counting the numbers of emails I got about different questions. And those were the things I get asked about the most often. And so I wanted to give these really comprehensive responses to those questions in the context of faith, doubt, and science. Okay, so everybody listen up because we have a culture where the the books that are about God that are on the bookshelves, the big selling ones. No, no offense to any of these people, but you know, I mean, it's either Joel Osteen and Joyce Meyer and on, on one side of things, or it's Dawkins and Hitchens and, and people, you know, it's kind of this, uh, those are the big God selling titles. And I don't know about you, but I feel like this book and somebody's voice like Mike needs to be in the cultural conversation about God, not just for the fans of the Liturgist podcast, not just for Mike's tribe or Mike's family and friends in church like this. This is an important book. Those of you that are about to read it will know that, but we need those of us uh, that really get why this is important and a lot of you are the people that listen to this show get why these ideas are important for people. Uh, let's make this book happen. Let's like share about it, talk to people about it, buy it, buy multiple copies of it, give it to people, share about it on social media. Um, you can get it at Finding God in the Waves, you can get it at any bookstore, Amazon, wherever, wherever. Get it, get the ebook, get them all because this is important. I, I really think that it is. Um, it's going to be important for your you individual people and you're going to find hope but culturally in religion in science in philosophy mike is a rare bird there's not many scientifically literate christians it just doesn't exist very much especially not uh scientifically literate and very philosophically and religiously literate so Let's make this voice, let's speak to the culture and and try to get this thing on the bestsellers list. Let's try to get this thing out there and heard about because I think it will do a lot. This is an important step in the conversation of our culture towards wholeness, towards shalom, towards understanding camps that are so warring against each other. Um, So I've already pre-ordered my, it's not out yet right now. I've pre-ordered my Amazon copy, but I'm going to try to find other ways of buying it and get put, go put it on the, you know, a fun trick. Go like find it in a bookstore and like if it's not real prominently displayed, just go ahead and put it out. <laughs> <laughs> I do that all trick. the time for people. 
Literally every time I see a Rachel Evans book, I put it face out instead of spine out. Yeah. <laughs> Do that. That helps. Every little thing helps. So congratulations, Mike, on a very well-written and beautiful and important book. It's going to help tons of people. It's an honor to watch it happen and be part of it with you. <laughs> yeah, I got nothing. <laughs> Sorry. Crying on the podcast. That's how I roll. <laughs> Well, as always, we would love to hear your thoughts on this episode. There's a lot of ways you can do that. You can go to theliturgist.com slash podcast, where you can leave comments on this episode. You can hit us up on social media at The Liturgists on Instagram and Twitter, or slash The Liturgists on Facebook. Of course, The Liturgist podcast is made possible by some wonderful people. First of all, our patrons on Patreon make the show financially possible. And we want to thank two people for help making this show possible. Greg Nordine helps us with production and sound design. And Corey Pig handles project manager and production needs as well. Thanks for making the Liturgist podcast happen. I'm Science Mike. I'm Michael Gunger. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye.